0: Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 21st, 2016. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Dr. John Ballinger, pastor at Woodbrook Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland. His sermon today is entitled, Mining Truth from the Rock
1: of Scripture. There is a uh, bit of the teacher in me. In the context of worship, that can be interesting and helpful. It can be intrusive and annoying. As the substitute today, I'm hoping and praying to be the one and not the other. So with uh, politicians these days trying to sound like preachers, And preachers who do sound like politicians, we have politicians and preachers whose priorities and attitudes I abhor. A political system and entirely too much worship that take too much for granted that I despise. All in a country that tells a story about its identity that's a lie what with its talk of freedom and opportunity for all. Did you hear the one about the person who was greeted walking into the casino? Anyone can walk out a winner. Well, yeah, but really not so much. Wow, he really should have done his yoga this morning, had less coffee, something. Here's the thing. If we don't have something true to say to our times, if we don't have something relevant to say, if we don't have something powerful to say, and if we don't have something hopeful to say, why waste our time? Within all this, we turn of all things to a story of Jesus, to which the lectionary invites our attention. There are several things within that story that won't let me go. First, the question, where are we in our text, physically, geographically, an apparently simple, straightforward question implying an obvious answer, right? And preaching politicians and politicking preachers love those obvious answers, especially when as scripture, they're also presented as definite, definitive, absolute, ultimate answers. This particular story is part of what's called Luke's travel narrative, that stretches from near the end of the the ninth chapter through the 18th or 19th chapter, encompassing those stories set between the time that Jesus up in Galilee set his face to Jerusalem to when he laments over the city immediately preceding the triumphal entry. The image is of the inexorable journey from the north to the south, From the Sea of Galilee to the cross of Jerusalem, the straight, straightforward, linear development to, you know, the the death that saves, the substitutionary atonement that explains everything, except it's really religious campaign rhetoric, often wrapped in the U.S. flag before being hung on the cross. It's the sound of religion without substance, words not made flesh or only made someone else's flesh. Ends justifying means instead of means that become ends. All the trappings of religiosity, which has worse connotations for our days than religion or even Baptist. Except we don't know where our story takes place. We can't answer that simple, straightforward question. Traditionally, our story is still located somewhere up in the Galilee. Jesus is made aware of death threats. Pharisees warn him of Herod's intent to kill him. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, whose seat of power was in Tiberias on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. The man we already know who killed John the Baptist, another child of promise and miracle. So the story set in Galilee makes sense. We're well into the travel narrative, but we're still closer to the beginning than the end. Some argue for a setting in Perea, Herod's southern territory, east of Jerusalem, east of the Jordan River, which, you know, we're still a a a ways from the narrative end of the travel narrative, but but we still have more chapters to go than we've gone. But geographically, that would place him closer to the end of the travel, closer to Jerusalem. But at one point in all this travel narrative, nearer the beginning of it, actually, before our text, back in Luke 10, there's a detail that we can't just skip over. Jesus is, we read, at the house of Mary and Martha, which, according to John's gospel, was in Bethany, on the east or southeastern slope of, of the Mount of Olives. Right outside Jerusalem. Now, that's admittedly in John's gospel. But the parallel account of this story that we're reading in Luke, in Matthew, is set in Jerusalem. And and later in Luke, Pilate will end up sending Jesus to Herod in Jerusalem. So it could be. and, And I would suggest it might well have been that our story unfolds on the Mount of Olives. And that receiving the death warning from the Pharisees and and lamenting over Jerusalem, Jesus was actually looking down over the city of Jerusalem, looking at the Temple Mount. It may well have been that he was actually more back and forth than the traditional readings of the travel narrative suggest. That it wasn't this direct linear development to the death on the cross. And that begins to feel a little bit more like my life, which is so very rarely like a straightforward linear progression and, and, and so much more like a uh, convoluted, meandering journey to I'm not sure where, which sounds better than mess. And, and, and that's job, and that's calling, and that's relationships, and that's parenting, and that's faith. Or, or, or maybe that's just me. But I, I saw some recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' warnings, go and tell that fox for me. Now, now when we think of someone being called a fox, we think of someone who might be, you know, cunning, uh, uh, sneaky. But, but, but coming from the Old Testament imagery, it would have been an insult to identify someone with the pest that ruins the vineyards. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the translators chose fox in Greek to translate jackal in Hebrew as scavengers of ruined cities who ate the dead. You go tell that pest of a death eater who threatens me with his diet. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Now, what does that mean? I, Casting out demons and performing cures, not that part. That's really nothing on which to get hung up. That's just how he talked about his work, what he was called to do. We might say something more like, uh, listen, I am living the love and working the will of God today and tomorrow, but what does he mean by, and on the third day I finish my work? At one level, it could mean, literally, I'm right here for the next three days. Come and get me if you want. Almost a confrontive, in-your-face dare. Except, except, we know he's not going to finish his work in three days. So, at another level, the third day—I, I, uh, you don't know this about me—but I love the, the, the symbolism of Hebrew numbers. And three, you probably know, represents fulfillment, completion, perfection has nothing to do with how many days we're talking about, but represents the perfect day, the culmination of days. You go tell that fox what I'm doing and will continue to do what I was called to do until that work is completed and he will not scare me off. And yet at a third level, we're left wondering, huh, exactly when does Jesus finish his work anyway? When he's killed, some would say that, he lives with the threat of death until he dies. But then it's on the third day that he's resurrected, so some would would point to the resurrection. But isn't that kind of when his work begins to continue again? You have the Emmaus Road story here in Luke, and then all all the stories in Acts. You go tell that death eater and any other death eater that even death won't be able to swallow me or end my work. And in this gospel, in this gospel after the resurrection, Jesus ascends from, Do you know, how about that? Bethany. Hmm. And is the work of Jesus complete now? Today? No. Jesus goes on. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way. And so here's that other detail that wouldn't let me go. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's apparent repetition, right? of today, tomorrow, and and, and on the third day, but are they the same? Because if they are, it sure sounds like he's saying two different things about the same time frame, doesn't it? I have to be on about my work, and then I have to be on my way, except it's the same days. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, or the third day. Unless unless being on the way was doing the work. His work as the way of God that is the fulfillment of all days. I love that. This, by the way, is a picture of my brain on scripture. (laughs) Full of connections and questions, full of possibility. Now, there's some relief to that, that that, that the work of God might be uh, more about being on the way, uh, back and forth along the way, and less about arriving, achieving, accomplishing. And I must be on my way, Jesus goes on, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Now, the traditional reading is, okay, I've got to get myself to Jerusalem so I can be killed. I really don't like that. And yet, yes, we know, we do encounter death in life probably more than we know. That's truth. That's risk. And we each decide what to do in each encounter. Do we run from death? Do we face it? Do we overcome? And if so, how? And in the end, in its fullness, it awaits us all. That's that's part of Lenten and Holy Week liturgy, to make sure no one thinks that you can just arrive on Easter Sunday morning. Resurrection doesn't. Resurrection can't happen without death. And that's the momentum of Luke's travel narrative, the trajectory to the cross. Or is it? For if Jesus was, in fact, in Jerusalem, his words could be read a very different way, couldn't they? I need to leave Jerusalem. I need to leave the city that needs me so because it won't accept me. And because it's not time for me to die yet. It's not the third day yet, and I'm still on the way. It's a powerful affirmation. Jesus did not come to die. If he had, why not just get it over with? Could have happened right here, right there. Herod evidently wanted to kill him, but Jesus came to live. Jesus came to teach and to tell stories. Jesus came to heal people, to open eyes, and to get the silent people to singing and the left aside people to dancing. Jesus came to live amongst us and to live amongst us in the way of God, in the way of life and life so abundant. That's what, I, that's what I love. That's what I love. We start simply thinking about where, where, where does this story happen? And, 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 and what particular three days are, are referenced? Because there's a little bit of ambiguity there. And we tug at the details until all of a sudden we're reevaluating the life of Jesus. Until we're saying Jesus did not come to die, but came to live in such a way as to confront death with life. Jesus goes on to lament, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And, and but you weren't willing. Now there's a transition into exactly what I would do. Wouldn't you? I, I mean, just like Jesus, to identify those who kill prophets who wanted to kill him And embrace them. How often have I desired to gather you killers of prophets together, you who threaten those who come in the name of God. How long I have longed to confront death with life, to embrace your love of death, to embrace your fear, and to love it all away, to mother you with my love, but you won't let me. Amazing Jesus. Love your enemy, forgive them, they know not what they do. He means it. Jesus goes on See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Traditionally, a word of judgment. You're on your own until you repent. At another level, and especially if Jesus is right outside the city, it's also kind of an, okay, I'm I'm leaving you to it, I'm leaving it to you, and you won't see me because I won't be here. Until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until Palm Sunday, the so-called triumphal entry, when Jesus literally comes back and people literally say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But also, and again, at another level, we might hear him saying, you won't see me. Your eyes won't be opened. You will be blind. You won't be able to see me until you say and until you mean. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of God. You won't see me until you start looking for me. Entering Jericho, Jesus encountered a blind man and asked him, What what do you want me to do for you? And, Lord, let me see. And Jesus cured him. What what do you want me to do for you, Jerusalem? Because you still don't want to see, do you? And the scary truth is, people do not see Jesus. Jesus. Jerusalem did not see Jesus. Some of us don't see Jesus. In fact, many I would suggest of those who talk about Jesus an awful lot don't see Jesus. Don't see him longing to gather our cities together our urban downtowns and our suburbs, those highly educated and those less so, our churches and our synagogues and our mosques, our public schools and our private schools, our houseless population and our homeless one. Gather us all together as family in the transformative reality of love. So, ah, do I... Do I really want to see Jesus? Do you really want to see Jesus? Because Jesus is there to see. Often, much more clearly than we would like, much more clearly than is comfortable, much more clearly than is easy. The time frame Jesus introduced today, tomorrow, until the third day, encompasses the full scope of Jesus' work and ministry that is still not fulfilled. Because our cities are still divided, because injustice is acceptable, because there is not peace on earth, because our times and our circumstances are transparent to Jesus, who is clearly there to be seen as the alternative to what is. So how in the world do we get to the third day? I'm going to tell you. Simply by remaining on the way of God today, and tomorrow and the next day. That's simple. I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's simple. It's the AA insight. You focus on the smaller picture of the immediate time frame so you don't get overwhelmed by the big picture. You look at today and you look at tomorrow. I think we do tend to underestimate just how hard the challenge of our calling is. I mean we're just called to participate in the transformation and redemption of all creation. That's all. <laughs> okay, I can't do that. That's you know that's a little bit beyond me. But today today I can look for God. Today I can look for Jesus, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Today I can pray. Today I can read scripture. Today I can, I can tell a child a scripture story. Not for scripture's sake, not for heaven's sake, but for living's sake. That child's living, mine, yours, and God knows who else's. Today I can offer a word of praise or sing one. Today I can offer a word of hope. Today, I can feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Today, I can consider someone else's needs along with my wants. Today, I can initiate grace in response to someone's need. Today, I can embrace someone that I wouldn't think to. Today, I can affirm, not in general, not in the abstract, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, but so much more specifically, so much more meaningfully, today, I will live as Christ. And the very specific, transforming, transformative question to ask in all this, okay, so how do I confront today death with life? Literally, for some, how do I physically die with assurance? But within our culture of death, it is also answering the question, how do I confront despair with hope? Amidst the rejection of love and the undermining of grace and the acceptance of injustice, amidst the pervasive fear and anger, how how do I live with joy? Amidst all the blame, how do I live with grace? Amidst all the violence, how am I marked by love? Amidst the greed and the materialism, how is my spirit clean? Amidst denigration, how do I build up? How do you, how do we? It's, it's interesting, isn't it, to think of even Jesus Even Jesus, negotiating life less with the ease of perfection than the commitment of discipline. On his way to Jerusalem, wondering how to live in the way of God today. How to walk in the way of God through this encounter, this confrontation, this experience, this opportunity, this threat, this betrayal, this conversation.
0: One more step. And then another.
1: And then another. Into and through a life lived in the way of God. And somehow transformation happens transformation of me, transformation of you, transformation of all creation. And tomorrow I may can do more than I do today. Maybe tomorrow a little better than today until I can even face death and not be swallowed. On the way of God in and through the world, today and tomorrow, until in the fullness of time, it's the third day. Ah, may it be so.